Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Losing the Plot. I'm Leo Robertson. I find artists of all varieties I find interesting. They're usually writers, they don't have to be. And uh, we talk about their work, we talk about life, we talk about anything and everything. We lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. As always, we start with the latest of what's going on over at Aphotic Realm. Uh, issue number seven is out now, it's gruesome. Who doesn't love over-the-top 80s horror films? A punk band fights off a horde of possessed fans at a local concert. A makeout session at the cemetery takes a turn for the worst. Slashers, critters, demons, gore, hairspray. The 80s horror B-movie aesthetic is what issue 7 gruesome is all about, so do check that out. The Realm also has its own merch store right on the Aphotic Realm site itself. Uh, you can buy t-shirts, beanies, caps and tank tops. And if you check out the new Aphotic Realm Instagram, you can see yours truly sporting an Aphotic Realm t-shirt uh, in the dark grey heather colour. I think it's great. And uh, there's loads of cool other merch. I'm sure I will get other stuff too. And uh, I hope you will as well. Please do check out the merch in the store. Finally, I hope you will consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon. As a patron, you'll get early access to podcast episodes such as this one. Um, you can also uh, get digital downloads of all Aphotic books as well. So do check that out. Please consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon also. I wrote this thing. I hope you like it. Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo. Guest this episode is Mike Thorne. He's a return guest to the podcast. His books are most recently Dreams of Lake Drucker and Exhumation. It's a book out with Demand Publishing, part of their Short Sharp Shocks series, and also Darkest Hours, a collection of short stories out with Unnerving. Um, great guy, great books. Hope you enjoy our chat. So, okay, so yeah, so you were still in, you were in Calgary last time, but you were finishing your degree, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's weird. It's been a while. Yeah. Yes. So I would have been finishing my master's last time we talked. Um, and then I worked for a while at a teaching and learning center on that campus at the University of Calgary campus. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm teaching at a local college. So lots of stuff has changed in the past. I guess it's been a couple, maybe even two years. I thought it's been about two years. Yeah. I guess just under. But, um, sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't feel like it, but, um, yeah. So, okay. So what are you teaching now? I'm teaching uh, English composition. So I'm teaching four sections, but it's all the same class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's at Bow Valley college. So I'm, it's uh it's an interesting course because there aren't any assigned texts mm -hmm. and we kind of, uh, have carte blanche with the syllabus. So I'm doing like, we started with Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat, 
Then we're doing some film criticism. Um, then we're looking at just like articles about recent events. So social media addiction, climate change, just any variety of issues that the students might find like relevant or that they're already thinking about in some sense. Mm-hmm. That's wild. So what is like, and what cool. do you teach about all these different things? It's uh, the way I'm kind of framing the course is that the two primary tenets are critical reading and critical writing. Mm-hmm. So it's about critically reading these pieces, um, a variety of different pieces, just like uh, ways of interpreting texts and um, parsing out like the claims of texts and then how those claims are backed up with grounds, how the grounds warrant the claim. That's kind of the structure I'm going with. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also just giving them a lot of like writing guidance. So like grammar, style, sentence structure, syntax, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But like, okay, how does that... That's kind of fun. Yeah? You're enjoying it? I am, yeah. Mm. Um, How is it... Okay, so you must have studied this, but like, is it informing your fiction somehow to do this, to be teaching this? Oh, good question. Um, Definitely teaching something like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat Mm -hmm. is useful for like anytime you look at an amazingly constructed piece of fiction like that with four different groups of students and um, parse out how the story is working. That kind of thing is really useful. Um, But uh, my students had pretty mixed responses to that particular story. So I kind of steered a little bit away from the fiction uh, since then. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And then I guess in terms of thinking about writing, it's mostly nonfiction writing that these students are doing. They're mostly in degree programs, like professional degree programs, nursing, early childhood development, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's mostly like nonfiction writing they're doing. So maybe it helps me with thinking through like the mechanics of my nonfiction stuff, like my criticism. Mm -hmm. And how is the criticism going? Have you seen anything good recently? Um, yeah, it's going well. I, uh, I have, um, an article lined up to, uh, that will address like Rob Zombie's filmography from the 2010s specifically. So I'm hyped for that. Um, but I haven't had the chance to see his newest. It hasn't screened anywhere in Calgary. Mm-hmm. So I'm anxiously anticipating that. Um, criticism. I've been doing some book reviews recently. I reviewed my friend, Neil Howell's a uh, new noir novel called Only Pretty Damned for um, a local magazine called Freefall. Does an awesome novel. Mm, and I reviewed, uh, there's a woman from my graduate program named Erin Vance. Um, I reviewed her novel. Um, film criticism I haven't done as much recently. I just watched Fred Durst's new movie last night, The Fanatic. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's very interesting. So um, yeah, I I saw some video pop up on YouTube. I was going to watch it, but then I thought I, it just sounds like it's a total disaster, though. Yeah, it's um, it's a really um, it's a it's a strange it's a strange movie. Like it seems like um, Fred Durst is maybe like consciously making this comic thriller with it, a darkly comic thriller. 
Um, it's like, I feel like if anyone's looking at it through a kind of ideological lens, it's a totally reprehensible movie. Like it's just absolutely misanthropic across the board, but I kind of liked that about it. It has this like kind of nasty undercurrent. So it's, it's weird because it humanizes the Travolta character, which Travolta plays in this really (laughs) uh, unique way, I guess you'd say. And then it, it just kind of like, ends up undercutting all of its characters. Um, It's not badly made, actually, from like a formal standpoint. Uh, Fred Durst actually clearly has like an eye for film form. It's quite well shot. Um, It's it's it definitely holds it held my attention throughout. But the performance styles and the writing, I think, are where (laughs) it's uh, getting the most flack. And I can see why. Cool. I don't um, know what to make of it, to tell you the truth. I'm going to watch I that. I kind of liked it. Yeah. I think it was a red letter media thing or something similar has appeared I, on YouTube about it. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Well, I, um, I'm alone this weekend because my partner's gone off uh, to hang out with a friend. And so I was like, right, I'm just going to do a bunch of random stuff by myself. I've been doing all kinds of stuff. But one thing I did last night was I went to go see... Uh, the new Tarantino film. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, actually, that's we read a, a review of that film in my in my composition class. I did see it. Oh, you did see it. What did you think? Hmm. What did I think? I found it uh, like a, an absolute blast to watch. Um, like the performances were univer- uniformly phenomenal. Obviously, I mean, mm. uh, I think DiCaprio. Is probably the best living American actor. I've always been a huge fan of his work. Um, I found it. Um, I found the third act actually was probably the most disappointing. I liked it the most when it was just this kind of meandering observation of '60s Hollywood, and the moment Tarantino goes for his kind of revisionist. Uh, tendencies i get what she's done with his past few films i just always find it ends up being less satisfying than i would have hoped like any of his revisionist ideas i just i don't find them convincing in a way Hmm. um but like it's so much fun to watch and the performances were amazing and it's probably his most like uh well constructed film in terms of um the cinematography and I mean, Robert Richardson is an incredible cinematographer. I don't know. What did you think of it? It's a weird, again, another strange movie. Hmm. Um, yeah, good point. I think that um, he obviously gets, like you say, he gets the best of what Hollywood has to offer. Like, it's very well made. All the performances were well done. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he obviously, like has a love for that era and how things were done and wanted to do that. But it was more like a kind of documentary style because it felt like, you know, if you're in control of the narrative here, why didn't you put one in? Like it it was obviously like a well done portal to this era, but I don't understand why there wouldn't be a better, more compelling story. You've got like the how do you make the Manson family boring? You know, it's like, and what's your point in doing that? Like, why are you making me spend so much? I, I, I feel like, um, and I feel like people will say that 
it's it's a a genius move of subtlety because it's Tarantino rather than like get that get the money away from that old man. <laughs> He's rambling, you know. <laughs> right? It's like it's it was very it was very interesting, but by the end I like I was honestly wanted to say to the screen, I was like, Can I go now? Can I go? Look, she, okay, she's dead now. Can I go? Can I leave, please? Cause it it was like being um it was like being held down by a guy who like loves that era and he's like, and what they used to do is they used to film and they'd have a stuntman and you're like, that's that's great, but you don't seem to care that I don't share your passion, but I'm listening kindly, but when I next like when I next need to get a drink. I'm not coming back to you, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. A mixed bag, I'll say. Yeah, a mixed bag. Yeah, definitely had yeah, that that like um I guess you'd say like the fetishism of the movie, the way he's fetishizing the past and the Hollywood of the past hmm. is interesting and it feeds into I think a pretty convincing reading that maybe seems too obvious, but it seems to me like the movie's quite right reactionary too. Like it almost seems like he's grafting the Manson family onto what he would probably term like the contemporary PC critics who condemn him for violence. So it seems like he's and it's not a very compelling way of reading the Manson family historically, I don't think. It seemed to me like he just wanted this cathartic exercise of like bashing a cipher of like feminist criticism against a wall. I was kind of like, um, really? I don't know. That, maybe that's an, an uncharitable reading, but it seemed as if that might be what he was up to. That was part of what left a bad taste in my mouth. I was like, um, and that's not to say I can't enjoy films whose politics I find reprehensible. Like I find a lot of Eli Roth's recent movies are extremely reactionary in some ways too, but I actually find his films often more complex or more troubling. Like they're usually complicating their assumptions in some ways and Tarantino's mm. it just felt like too simplistic in its I don't know if, I don't know if that makes sense that's kind of how I read the third act and I was like really that's what he was spending two and a half hours to build up to like that's his statement uh, yeah I think that's very interesting it's a good point and I think you're probably on the money because I think that um yeah you're right because they say it's not too much of a spoiler I suppose but they are like these people taught us violence, so let's be violent to them. And then we as the audience are supposed to say, now that's a silly exactly. thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think like the last, I, I watched his last, hatefully, I hated it. Um, it. I watched it when I was freezing and like, it, it was freezing in Oslo and I was wearing this coat, coat and I couldn't fall asleep because it was too loud. But I just heard the wind whistling all the time, and I was like, "I'm freezing. This is really cold." Um, and then at the end, like that builds up to this, like, "This is my film criticism. It's it's completely unpublished, you know, for a good reason." But like, um, that film builds up to this horrible act of violence as well, and the idea of playing female violence for laughs when you're supposed to be this creative genius. Like, could you not have done anything else? How about playing? male violence for laughs how about playing something else for laughs and to, to have done it again uh, like you say to to do that same thing again and the people in the audience that i was in were laughing but just maybe because something was finally happening you know it, it, but it, it really yeah silly and and i i thought that like in in glorious bastards where he does this historical revisionism thing it's like it works really well there because you don't expect it, but to see him do it again, it's like it, it, it's a bit tired. So I don't know. No. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've never, I, I feel like, um, like a lot of people in my teens, I was like really excited by Tarantino's movies. They felt kind of transgressive, tra- kind of exciting, but, hmm. um, as time goes on, I just find them less interesting. And you're so right about playing it for laughs. Like that entire third act, the theater was like rolling in the aisles. Mm. Um, I didn't even think it was very good comedy. Like the flamethrower gag was too broad for me. I was like, this is like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't quite land for me, but there are a lot of interesting things in the movie too. So I, I couldn't say, I wouldn't say I, I found it entirely like um, useless as a film, but overall mixed feelings i suppose yeah good point yeah very good point i i think that um the same thing is happening with lars von trier it's like get the camera away from granddad's man like he's, he shouldn't be putting this shouldn't be showing people these things <laughs> um did you see the house I at jack seen his newest I've, heard, I've actually heard good things oh really yeah so essentially it's like it says it's very strange serial killer guy i think he kills five people um that's it. That's the first like two hours, and then the last part is is interesting and well lit, and but it just seems to be again not enough of a payoff. How strange that these two directors are doing this weird, weird structure. Um, I don't know what they're up to. I think maybe they're maybe they're trying to push the boundaries of the genre. They're trying to do something new with cinema, but I haven't seen them do it yet. Maybe there's a chance for some extra. I don't know artistic movement for them to stumble across later but i don't see that it's been found yet yeah in terms of von trier i remembered um i loved antichrist Mm. uh, which i guess that was 10 years ago now and melancholy i remember liking some things about i thought kirsten dunst was again uh next level amazing uh but i i don't know if i've seen anything since i didn't see the nymphomania films but those looked kind of interesting i, I want to see his last few but i haven't been i haven't caught up with the past few von trier films mm. yeah fair no the nymphomania ones are they're okay they're not great but they're i get i think there's interesting things in them um hey that's enough about people that aren't you because you've got a book coming out Yeah, Dreams of Lake Drucka and Exhumation. Um, it came out on ebook a couple days ago, I guess, the time that we're recording this. So it came out on the 27th. And then mm-hmm. there's going to be a paperback release sometime late 2019, early 2020, I think, although the details aren't set in stone for that yet. Cool. So tell me about these stories. What do they mean to you? Um. So they were two stories written. Uh, they weren't written in close proximity to each other, like probably a few months apart. Um, but I originally submitted Dreams of Lake Drucka to Domain Publishing. Um, and the editor, uh, Dean, said he liked it, but it wasn't quite long enough for the talk, the context in which he would like to release it, which was part of their Short Sharp Shocks series which are, um, again, they're little ebooks about 10,000 words. And then he releases them later as, as paperbacks. So he asked if I had anything else I'd like to submit. And I looked through some other stories I had written in the past year or so. And I, um, I realized that this other story, Exhumation, was kind of a, 
an accidental companion piece in some ways. They're both about characters who are revisiting sites of trauma in a way, uncovering some uh, familial secrets. Mm -hmm. They both involve journeys in some sense. Um, and they both descend into madness in the final uh, act, I guess. So, yeah, I ended up submitting that one. And he said, yeah, I like the way these two fit together. And it ended up being this <clears throat> kind of duology pairing that I didn't, um, I hadn't noticed in advance that they were as connected as they are. Was there something going on? Was there something that you were trying to work out that, you know, translated into these stories? Journeys, revisiting trauma? Um, I think all of my fiction is dealing in some way with, uh, some degree of personal trauma, um, often in abstracted ways. Um, dreams of Lake Druka, I feel like for me is harder to parse what, uh, the personal connection might be. Um, I wrote, although the characters in Exhumation are not in any way similar to people I know in my actual life. I wrote Exhumation after taking a trip to Red Deer with my family for a funeral of a cousin who died far too young. Um, and just the, the vibe of uh, a church basement um, in the middle of the, the winter. I remember um, just feeling like there's something kind of, uh, there's this ineffable quality to that space and to the uh, feeling of being in that space that I think that's where it started. Maybe. Um, I think I wrote the story around that time. So that's probably where that started. Um, yeah. And that story, I guess is partially about being chased by your own regret or chased by your, the misdeeds of your past, being unable to escape the misdeeds of your past. I think a lot of my fiction is about that as well. This mm. kind of guilt, um, and that is probably personal in the sense that I was brought up Catholic. So there's that Catholic guilt thing. Um, I guess you'd probably say I'm more or less a relapsed Catholic or like agnostic, but there's probably some element of that that's always going on. Hmm. When somebody, when something like that happens to a family member, does it make you think, I don't know. It sounds like it makes you think about paths in your own life that you've narrowly avoided. Is that your experience or no? Yeah, maybe that's a good question. Um, yeah. Cause I, I suppose that story is also about, um, the kinds of like ghosts of addiction as well. And I feel like that's something that I feel I've, managed to avoid in my life, but that a lot of people near and dear to me throughout my life, for whatever reason, have struggled with addiction, like uh, families and, and family members, and um, <clears throat> even like some romantic partners in the past and stuff like that. So um, perhaps that plays into it too. That would have been an unconscious thing, but maybe that's, maybe that's there as well. Hmm. Um, yeah. Is there something about 
No, I know. I know the the second story is set in Calgary. Is Lake Drucker a real place? No, it's not. I kind of grafted it onto um, Lake Country in Ontario, which is also in Canada. I took a, a vacation there with uh, my folks a few years ago, and I remembered the the um, the kind of settings that I could graft the stories settings onto. Mm-hmm. Dreams of Lake Druka kind of started as um, an attempt to capture some of the vibe of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. I love the way Daphne du Maurier uses dreams in that novel. Uh, my story ended up being nothing like Rebecca in any way, shape, or form, but that was kind of the original impetus, um, that gothic uh, dream focus, I suppose. Hmm. What is it about Calgary that's so dark or that 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 these things happen to people in Calgary? I think with Calgary, for me, I've lived here pretty much my whole life. I was born in a small town just outside of Calgary, uh, Drayton Valley, but I've lived in Calgary pretty much my whole life. So any of like my uh, association with uh the ghosts of the past or trauma or regret or guilt, I can graft onto specific places. Um, and, and then in terms of like the city itself, um, it's uh, the, the weather is often quite oppressive here. It's, it's extremely dry year round. Um, the winters usually last upwards of six months, usually uh, often longer than that. Um, so the cold, I guess, um, is something I like drawing on. It's interesting. I didn't really draw to my recollection much from specific places in any of the stories in darkest hours. I liked having this kind of general, um, I guess, suburban North American feel to most of the stories. Um, but I'm starting to write stories that are oriented in a specific place and time. Mm. Um, I've been asked to contribute to a, an anthology that will be like prairie Gothic themed. So again, that'll be set in the Albertan prairie region. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's good. Like if ever, if ever a story is not set in a specific place, I always wonder why, because it feels, it's like a, it's a missing layer could be there. So what is specific about this story that it has to happen in, in one place? And I think that's really, when there are so many writers in the world, it's what I want to know. But it's also, I think, the one thing that you take for granted where you're from. That's a really good point. I, are you still in Norway, by the way? I am. I've moved to Stavanger. I was in Oslo before when we spoke, but that was just for like a temporary work project. I'm a permanent staff uh, in Stavanger, so I was always going to come back here. Interesting. Mm. Is your um, is your partner living with you permanently now? I remember last time you two were like kind of long distance. Is that still the deal? Uh, no, he's moved here now. Um, he was in Oslo, I think at the time when we spoke. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. But um, he was working in Oslo, and he's had to he had to give up his job to come here, but they were paying for our apartment in Oslo. So it didn't really make sense to keep him there. 
money wise. So even though he's moved here and he doesn't yet have a job, um, we're still saving money, which is weird. But um, he's going to like Norwegian classes, and there's there's a lot going on in the city. I think that like because we moved from Oslo to here, uh, and because it was essentially not like my fault because I'm still providing, but like it it was because of my job that we came here. I felt a need to demonstrate that there was so much going on in Stavanger, and there's there's all kinds of things. Um, so I don't know, but I mostly hang out with expats, people who are not from Norway. I find it very difficult to integrate into the culture here still. Yeah. I assume your plan is to stay in Calgary, you know, going on, but I really understand why people let you do that because you've got your family and your friends and you, you're, you, you're, you're kind of molded into the culture in ways that perhaps you don't even notice until you go somewhere else and you go, why, why don't they do it that way? And you're like, cause it's, I don't know. It's just not the done thing in a different place. Mm. Yeah. That's, um, that's a really interesting point. Um, and oddly enough, uh, part of the reason I, I was asking about your partner, my my wife is doing her PhD in New York right now. Oh. So I'm going to be moving to a completely and radically different place after this teaching contract is up. So like by the new year, I'll be in New York City. And I'm wondering how that will affect my writing, because you're right. There is this kind of taken for granted uh quality to the way I think I certainly I think about the place I live in. I'm always aware of Calgary mm -hmm. and the way I do and don't feel at home in Calgary. I think a lot of my fiction draws from my uh, just lifelong experience of feeling like I don't really belong anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that could partially be just a Calgary thing. I don't know, but I definitely don't feel like I belong here or like this. Yeah. So I think that also in some way connects to my fiction but uh, yeah i'll be interested to see how my how i feel in a different space and how that affects my my writing hmm. i think that you'll probably i don't know i mean you can do you can do anything you want but i reckon that you'll probably you could tell more calgary stories even more effectively now that you know what is so specific about the region when you experience a different culture um i to this day, keep writing stories about Glasgow, a city I haven't lived in in over a decade, because I know so specifically with each new place I go to what it is that makes a place so essentially Glasgow. And now my stories are more Glaswegian than ever, which is not necessarily a good thing, but uh, it's definitely happening. No, I think I think it probably is a good thing, and I mean, like, uh, certainly, even if we're thinking specifically in terms of genre fiction, hmm. um, most of the great horror and gothic fiction is extremely regional in its focus. Um, like from Edgar Allan Poe to like any of the um, English gothic novels to obviously um, Stephen King's work is very regional. Uh, and often that's one of the things that's most talked about in, in terms of horror and the gothic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's probably, it's probably to my, to my, benefit as a writer to start thinking more in terms of place. It's not to say I regret not orienting my previous work in place. I think I had reasons for doing that, but, um, yeah, you're, I think you're right. There's probably a lot to be gained from, from doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think just even, um, 
it's it's an opportunity for more depth, right? It's not something you have to force. Like I, it, as much as I say I set stories in Glasgow, it's not like I deliberately make characters talk in a vernacular that I don't use because I don't really specifically talk much like a Glaswegian person. So I don't start, you know, it's not going to read like Irvin Welsh. He was, I think, Edinburgh, but um, it's funny. You, um, yeah, you do. You learn so much more about a culture. Like people in my office, if they're British, they'll walk up to me and they'll be like, oh, I woke up terribly today because it's like, it's just cultural to complain to one another. But it, it, it isn't to me. So when they do it to me, I always go, oh my, I, like I always just go, why don't you try going to bed more early? And then they're like, well, why are you fixing it? I was just like doing what Brits do, you know? So, um, so it's to your point, you know, of like not feeling like, uh, not feeling like you belong anywhere. I'm glad to have avoided that, you know, British thing. And I definitely don't feel very Glaswegian. Um, but there are also parts about life that are just, um, you're going to be alone for long periods of time and you're going to be bored, like no matter who you are. And that's tough. And I think that if you go to a different place, then maybe you'll, I'm not saying you haven't noticed this, but maybe you'll take it less personally because then you go, oh, this is just like an inherent function of being a human. You know, it's not, it's not me versus Calgary. It's just, it's just what it's like to be an adult, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't think it is just a Calgary thing. I think it's just, um, that weird uh it's probably a combination of uh in some ex it, in some cases it's like an imposter syndrome thing and then in other cases just always feeling weird like i'm a weird person um which i've grown to just accept and and embrace that in a way so mm. my interests have often been very specific and not necessarily aligned with many other people that i find myself in the company of and that's okay um so I've grown to like accept that and embrace that. And it, and it's, it's like, it can be both a uh, strength and it can sometimes be difficult, but yeah, I wouldn't say that's a regionally specific thing. Although Calgary, um, it's, it's an odd city. It's a very, it's changing. Um, but it's very much a business focused city. So I've, I've had friends visit from Toronto and elsewhere who will go downtown Calgary on like, a Thursday night at 7 p.m. And they'll be like, why is it like, why is there nothing open? Why is there no one downtown? Mm -hmm. And it's just because like office buildings open, they open from like eight to four and then everyone leaves. And that's this ghost town. It's a very strange city in that respect. There are probably other cities like that too, but so it's like that plus the weather plus um, it's a very conservative city politically it has all these unique qualities that, yeah, I'll probably be able to orient more in relation to another place once I've lived elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's like I, I, I Skype with my brother and he um, he was like, Leo, like, let's not Skype for a while, but I'm going to spend a lot of time reading so that we have something to talk about every time. And it's actual it's it's a lot of work to develop a personality and to be interesting. Um, and it's it's. If anyone tries to quash that, it's because they're scared because they're not doing that work, and and maybe it's because, um, maybe it's because they don't have the time because they have families, and maybe it's because they don't know what their interests are and they don't know themselves very well, and that's all fine. But none of that is a reason to to squash anyone who's who's very specific about their passions, you know. 
Yeah, I guess um, I've definitely always been uh, really passionate in terms of, um, I guess I've been lucky. I've, I mean, I, I had to, I should say I have met a lot of amazing people in Calgary and I have some amazing friends here. Um, I guess part is something that's interesting is part of it. As you get older, your friends also move like I have, uh, and you probably definitely are in, 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 a, in a situation like this where you're living elsewhere from a lot of your good friends. Hmm. So a lot of my friends have moved to Toronto or New York or elsewhere. Like people are just all over the place now. That's an interesting thing that happens as you get older too. Your your social circle kind of fragments in a way. Hmm. But then when you do reconnect with those people, it, it it's it feels so much more. Um, not that it wasn't always valuable, but it feels more vital and valuable to reconnect hmm. when people are when it's rarer, I guess, or more difficult to line things up. Yeah. I agree. And I think that um, it feels tougher. Like both of us are still in terms of age, like very, very, very young. So I think that like, although maybe you're, if you're going to a new place and you feel like you're nervous about making new friends, it feels like it's over. I've already made all my friends. I'm not going to make any new friends. And then you'll go and like, it's so easy to do. Like I've been doing it. I go to like, there's like film clubs here. I've started a club myself. Like there's clubs for expats and I go along and everyone's just like, oh, hey, like, oh, um, you went to Spain. I am Spanish. And then you're like, great, let's have a drink and a chat. And then you're like, let's meet up and have a coffee or something. It's so easy to make friends. It's not, um, it just feels kind of scary. And yes, like the friends you have when you're growing up are always going to be kind of more valuable, right? But it's I'm just thinking about like what I've learned recently. It's nothing to be afraid of moving to a new place. Like you won't, everything that you enjoy, you'll be able to do there, especially now because of the internet and everything. Um, especially like in a city in like New York that you're going to. Oh my God, you're going to get so much to do. But I remember last time we talked that you and your partner were looking at PhD programs and you were trying to do them both in the same city, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I'm in a. I'm I'm actually having a bit of a hard time right now because I'm juggling so much. So I'm teaching the four courses, but I'm also studying for. Are you familiar with the exam, the GRE? I've not heard of it. It's a. It's a. Uh, it's a standardized test required for entry into U.S. programs, and half of the test is um, mathematics, and it's like math I haven't looked at in over a decade. So I'm teaching the four classes, studying like crazy for the GRE, and then I've got a bunch of writing deadlines ahead of me and grant applications and so on. So yeah, I, I, originally that that was the plan, but I reached a point where I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a PhD. Now I'm thinking that it seems like um, like a possible like like more of a possible option than I was thinking. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be applying to PhD programs all over New York City for next fall. So fall. 2020, I suppose. Hmm. Um, and I'm writing the GRE in just over a month, but yeah, I'll be moving there with her, hopefully getting into a PhD program. If not, I'll figure something else out. I don't know what that'll look like yet, but it'll be, uh, it'll be an adventure. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. How cool would it be if you get paid to live in New York? If it's enough to survive and, and, and live there for a few years, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she's doing, yeah, Sam's doing her, um, she's, yeah, she's doing her PhD in, uh, philosophy. She specializes in like, um, informal logic. 
So it's in, in some ways a, more adjacent to math, um, mm-hmm. but she does all kinds of philosophy. Like she's really interested in philosophy of science and um, she's brilliant. Uh, yeah. And she's, it seems like she's really liking it, but we've never done the long distance thing either. We've been together almost nine years and it'll, we'll be married a year in October. So it's kind of weird being apart for four months. Mm-hmm. Um, but Skype helps. Skype's great. Well, congratulations for getting married as well. I didn't even see. That's cool. But yeah, I think that um, I'm I'm a very, I think I'm actually a very optimistic person and uh, anything can be done. You know, lots of things are tough, but anything can be done if you really want to do it. If you guys are, you've been apart for four months, you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will be four months by the time we're reconnected. So uh, it's from like mid-August to mid-December that we're apart. Mm-hmm. I suppose there's a benefit to being so busy because I don't have as much time to linger on the fact that it sucks not having her around. So yeah. that's good mm-hmm. in a way. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and I think like it seems like that's just that's just life, you know, like. Uh, you'll encounter any number of obstacles and you just got to like, and often things seem impossible, but then you just do it anyway. It's like, this is, this looks impossible, but I'm going to do it anyway because (laughs) I don't have a choice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I don't know, you'll find, you you find banks of resilience you didn't know you had. And, you know, if only, if only life didn't make you do that, that would be wonderful. But it's just, that's, that's (laughs) not the way it is. Um, yeah, but no, I'm so glad that Juan is here and I tell him all the time, listen, like if, if all I end up doing is having a lovely time with you, great. Like then I'll consider myself a success. Um, and I just said like, unfortunately I'm actually really ambitious and like, like you, I mean, when it comes to the writing and stuff, you're like, I've just got to do this. I've just got to do this thing. So I'm really I have lots of things that I want to do, but I know that they, I prioritize them all beneath my relationship, frankly. Um, I think that like uh, having love and friends and family and stuff is more important than anything. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've definitely always um, <clears throat> foregrounded or prioritized my relationship with Sam over anything else. So like that comes first. Mm-hmm. And then, um, in terms of career path, I've just kind of like, uh, fumbled my way into a path. I, I definitely, uh, when I finished high school was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. And then ended up stumbling my way into a master's and like, that's going pretty well so far. And then the writing, um, I'm trying to learn not to beat myself up for not meeting certain quotas or whatever. I, I went through a period where I was giving myself daily quotas and stuff like that. Mm. And I realized depending on your situation, it's not always possible to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, like my novel in progress, last time we talked, I probably was saying my novel is going to be done in like a year. And I said this in a bunch of interviews and then I realized like, no, that's not going to happen. I'm still working on that goddamn thing, but that's okay. You know, it'll, it'll get done. Oh, yeah, of course it is. And like, it's not whether or not you are a real writer, just the notion of real writer is ludicrous. Because 
I mean, I, the more I do it, the less I understand why anyone couldn't do it. And the fact is, they all could if they wanted to. Um, and I don't understand why. I, I'd like everyone to collectively drop the notion that it has to be. You have to be like, I, I'm a writer, and writers do this. Like, <laughs> is that silly? <laughs> you can just do what you want, you know. <laughs> Yeah, there's no like one size fits all process. I think um, if you do find someone gives you their method and you're like, oh, that sounds like it would work for me and it does work, then great. If it mm -hmm. doesn't, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the there's a kind of like mantra that goes around that's like uh, whatever it is, a thousand words a day or, you know. Uh, there are any number of them, and it's it's like it 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 very well might not work for every writer. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of incredible writers I admire who are not especially prolific, and then there are other writers who churn out work. It just depends on uh, like the pragmatic uh, situation that you're facing. So, how much time do you actually have to work on it, and then mm. also your own cognitive capacity, your unique way of being your unique way of thinking. So yeah. Um, I did find I had a period where I was waking up at five in the morning every day and then I'd write for an hour before I'd get ready for work. And there was this kind of like spurious hyper lucid early morning quality that I was able to draw from that was incredible, but I just couldn't sustain it. I just got too fucking tired. Like, because I would write for an hour, then work for eight hours and by the end of the day, I was just dead. Um, so I did that for, you know, a few months and I was like, yeah, I can't do this long term. You know, mm. I'm not a, I'm not made of the right stuff. Maybe I could if I really wanted to, but. I, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I do agree that writing in the morning is definitely the best. Um, for that, like you say, you're kind of dreamy. You're, um, you're not really, it's before all that noise can come up about what you're supposed to be writing, wherever it's not there, you're just kind of getting out. Yeah, I agree that writing in the morning is good. I've never seen anyone prolifically churn out good work. I've always seen the quality diminish if somebody's churning out a lot of words every single time. Um, I think that, um, as you know, like when you finish a story, it's never really done. You could always give it another pass and, and, and improve it, but the people who are neglecting to do those other passes... Are, are 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 doing less good work so it's also about i don't know the 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 type the the level of quality that you're ready to see you know go into the world as well um i'm definitely against people who are kind of paralyzed into reworking sentences endlessly you know like um i thought i thought for a long time about george saunders i think i even mentioned him last time cuz he he takes like He's always writing lots of different stories, but he can take up to like eight years to finish one of them. And it's like mm -hmm. 10 pages or something. It's like, mate, calm down. Because as soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, he's like published and super famous. I guess that's what it takes to finish a short story. No, that's insanely pedantic. Um, <laughs> you know, and it, it is that. up to each individual. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's just like his, maybe that's just his um, approach that he's found has worked for him. Mm. You're, you're so right about the noise, um, mm. uh, shutting out the noise. Like that was part of what I found with the 5am thing is what part of what was so vital for me is not looking at my phone and not checking my emails, not checking my social media profiles until I had 
written for one hour. And that even that, I think all the noise you gather in the day as a result of those stupid things we carry in our pockets all day. And, you know, yeah, I think, I think, uh, that was part of what for me made it so productive was not looking at any of that until the words had been written. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so when I talked to Dean yesterday, uh, he mentioned that, I mean, he, he makes loads of films all the time and he's writing on, he's writing scripts and stuff. And he was thinking about maybe making like an associated film company with this publisher and maybe making films of the books that he publishes. Um, I think I know the answer, but is that something that would interest you? Yeah, hell yeah, that'd be cool. I didn't know he was thinking of that. Um, that could be really interesting. I'd love to see something of mine adapted. Like that would be really cool, wouldn't it? It would just be interesting to see someone approach it and and take it on and and give it a new form. That'd be sweet. Mm-hmm. Um. So I started I started a filmmaking club here in Stavanger. So we're going to make our own films and I've just been using my own phone uh, and I would love to adapt one of my own stories just using my phone. I think that'd be good fun. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see that uh, Soderbergh film? Uh, was it called Unsane? I love that film. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it too. Um, yeah. And I actually thought the, the iPhone brought a, a really uh, – interesting visual quality to the film that you could not get with any other medium yeah absolutely the the reason i haven't done the reason i hadn't done this before is i assumed there was some sort of barrier to entry like i need to like approach somebody for funding i need the right kind of camera and training and that's never been true like there were whole there were whole movements of people 10 years ago who picked up like their parents digital camera and just filmed their friends improvising and those short films premiered at big festivals so it's like Great. You just you grab a camera, you get in front of it, and you start doing whatever. Um, so, so that's what we're going to do. Um, but yeah, I think that's really cool. I look forward to seeing what he does with. Uh, I hope he does pick up this filmmaking thing with this publisher as well. Yeah, and I hope he picks your stories. I'll tell him to. He won't listen to me, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> Thanks for the vote, Leo. <laughs> So it, but if you could, like, so say say you do get the chance to adapt, like, any of your works, what, what would be first? Oh, that's tough. Um, maybe, uh, probably something from Darkest Hours. I'm just thinking. A new kind of drug might be fun. Either a new kind of drug or uh, Mictian Diab- Diabolus or Diabolus. Um, which I think would be like uh, a ridiculously grotesque slasher. I think that would be fun. Uh, or there's another story in Darkest Hours called The Auteur, where you could make, I think, a very interesting film within a film. That's something I've toyed with the idea of even adapting it into a script. I think that could be really interesting. Hmm. And you could even play with different media because the, the, the film within the film, you could even use um, older VHS um, uh, recording. Yeah, I think that would be cool. It'd be cool to see the Grimhaven disaster as a film, man. That would be fun. Oh, cheers. Yeah, absolutely. That That's definitely something I couldn't... Um, I would like a budget for something like that, you know? But yeah. good idea. I would put that on the list. Yeah, for sure. Done like a bit like um, Spring Breakers, 
right? With all these Hell crazy yeah. colors. And just mm -hmm. make sure people understand that it's supposed to be like just loads of fun, which I think all those, all those wee novellas I did that were so incredibly violent, they were just supposed to be fun. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, cheer. No, is it something, I mean, you have such a passion for film. Is it something that you see yourself doing, like being a screenwriter or directing your own stuff? Um, well, in high school, I acted in a lot of films by a friend of mine who's a very talented filmmaker named Brendan Prost. Mm -hmm. I would be quite embarrassed for my acting in those things to be seen now. Uh, but I think he's a good filmmaker. And then I also made an experimental film. Uh, God, it was over 10 years ago now, I guess, where I basically just ripped off the brown bunny minus the explicit sex mixed with Gus Van Zandt's last days. Um, again, probably kind of embarrassing to look at now, like definitely embarrassing to look at now, but that, that was my experience. That was a long time ago, but in terms of like, um, now that I'm older and, uh, I'd love to, it's definitely something I've thought about. Um, most of the kinds of films I would want to make though would require a budget. I feel like, I think some people can do incredible things with just guerrilla style, you know, super restricted um, equipment and so on. But I think the kinds of things I would like to make would be bigger in scale. Mm -hmm. I mean, there will but, definitely be ways to do that if you end up in New York. Fingers crossed. It'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, it's always, <clears throat> I guess, been a kind of pipe dream for me, mm -hmm. but I mean, if, yeah, if I ever found my way into any kinds of opportunities like that, absolutely. I would love to, um, yeah, there's some, I'd love to, to make something in the horror genre. Actually, that would be really cool. How do you feel about darkest hours now? I, th I mean, I haven't gone back and looked at it since it came out. I, I don't really go back and look at my stuff at all. Um, except I've been doing readings intermittently. I've got another one coming up next month so sometimes i'll go through and find passages to read from it um i think i think i'm happy with it i think it captures a certain moment in my life like most of the stories were written within a span of two years so it kind of captures where i was at creatively um so as a snapshot of where i was from i don't know about 2015 to 2017 um I think it is what it is. Yeah. Do you ever go back and read your stuff? I try not, unless I'm actively editing it. Once it's out, I mm -hmm. usually don't go back and look at it. Um, no, I don't. And I have some days where I couldn't even tell you like the name of anything I've written. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's all of a time and place. It's for, by the time it's released, it's for other people. And I don't think they need me going, oh yeah, but if I could have done it again, I would have put him like that just ruins it for everyone, you know? And of course, of course I could do all the stuff I've done better now. That's how I got the skills I have now is by writing all that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. It's not really the point. Yeah, I wouldn't go back and look at it. And I don't think there's a chance that you're going to write the same story twice because you become a different person and you have different interests and you're reading different things and you're thinking about different things because you, you've moved on from what you were thinking of at the time. But it's, it's, it's as you say, it's a record of what you made at the time. Um, I've been going back through for this film club because I was thinking about things that we could adapt and some things that we could do as monologues and stuff. Um, but I'm dreading it. 
dreading reading my own stuff again. It all seems like, personally, like, who would care what I have to say? Who would care what a younger me has to say about anything, you know? But that's just a, that's just a feeling. I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, I totally get that. I, I, looking back at anything I've created in the past is always painful. I, like, <laughs> that, that's part of the reason I don't do it. I'm usually like, why the hell did I phrase it that way? Or I'll just find the mistakes or the things I don't like about it. Mm. So for me, it's like, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not a, a positive experience for me going back to look at my older work. So then at this point in our chat, um, the app I was using to record the audio crashed. And I thought I'd lost the whole chat, but then I reopened it and saw that I had the chat up until this point. Um, but Mike and I were pretty much done talking by this point anyway, so I just kind of said bye. You didn't miss much, um, apart from it just kind of seems to interrupt, you know, just seems to end quite quickly, but you didn't miss anything. Um, it just, just ends a bit weird, but there you go. Uh, regardless, Mike's books are Dreams of Lake Drucker and Exhumation, out with Demand Publishing, and Darkest Hours out with Unnerving. Both great books, great guy. Hope you'll check those books out. Um, as always, if you uh, want to get in touch with me for any reason, maybe have some comments, maybe you want to be on the show because you're a reader, a writer, an editor, um, I don't know, an artist of some variety, um, or maybe you just want to say hi, you can always get in touch with me using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. But until next time, that's all from me. Bye-bye.